one of the best quotes we had in the series was, if we came in last in the Olympics, how would we react? And we're coming in last in the Olympics of staying alive. For the last year, Dan Keating has been thinking a lot about life expectancy in America. He's a data reporter at The Post, and he kept uncovering this troubling trend, which is that people here are dying too soon, despite the United States spending more per person on health care than any other country in the world. We're the worst among our peers, by far. So we had been about average among this group of about 25, 26 nations. And by the uh, late 20-teens, we were by far the worst. Dan rallied a group of health reporters to investigate. And they found that something changed in the U.S. in the last 40 years. There was really no difference in death rates between the richest and poorest counties in the U.S. back in 1980. And over the 40 years, that steadily, steadily grew. And before the pandemic, it was a very large gap. And then in the pandemic, once again, it expanded even wider. And that just shocked me. I did not expect to see that. It was that somehow over 40 years, our system had become much more discriminating in terms of keeping people alive who have a certain amount of income and not people who don't. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alana Gordon, your guest host today. It's Wednesday, November 8th. Today, we interrogate what is cutting our lives short in the U.S. First, we hear more from Dan Keating about what exactly the data is revealing. Then, we'll turn to The Post's Akila Johnson about one of the surprising factors she discovered behind all of this, one that's taking an especially heavy toll on our bodies. Finally, we hear from Dan Diamond about how red state politics are shaving years off our lives. Okay, back to the data. As Dan took a closer look at these numbers, he saw one data point that seemed to determine American life expectancy more than anything else. It's not your BMI or your blood pressure. It's your zip code. So there didn't used to be big differences in this country by state or by whether you lived in a rich or poor county or whether you lived in an urban area or a rural area. The gaps were all very narrow, and Americans pretty much lived roughly— you know, a fairly predictable amount of time. But now there are huge differences depending on whether you you live in one state or another or an urban or a rural area or a richer or poorer county. And as I said, all of those gaps are continuing to widen. So what's going on here? The biggest difference, of course, is America's for-profit medical system, which I believe is essentially unique in the the, uh, developed world, if not in the entire world. We don't focus on primary and preventative care. In this country, you get paid a lot of money to make a sick person healthy, but you don't get paid anything to keep healthy people healthy. And there's just things about American culture that are so different than other countries. How many hours we work, how much stress we put on ourselves, what they eat, what they drink, what they smoke, whether they exercise. It's not just opioids and gun deaths that are the big issue in America's life expectancy. It's chronic disease that kills people. You know, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, uh, other kinds of lung disease, kidney disease, liver disease, diseases that come from smoking and drinking and not having good preventative health care. And people are dying young of chronic diseases 
in this country at rates that are not happening in other countries. And that is, in fact, the biggest thing that's driving our life expectancy crisis. Seeing so many Americans dying prematurely because of these chronic illnesses, the Post's health reporting team wanted to know, why is this happening? When Akilah Johnson took this question to researchers and physicians, a surprising thing came up over and over again. Stress. The stress that we are talking about that affects people's lives is not raging out while you're driving to work because traffic is not moving fast enough or because JetBlue or American or some airline canceled your flight, right? Like, yes, that is stressful, but we are talking about stress. Like, not only can I not pay my bills, but I'm fighting with my landlord over the heating because the apartment is cold. While I really don't have the full amount of money to pay for the heat, but I need the heat because I've got an elderly grandparent who's living with me and maybe my newborn. And so we're freezing and and they are sick. And so it's kind of like there are layers upon layers of stress. And then mm. God forbid you happen to live in an under-resourced neighborhood or an over-policed neighborhood. You are a person of color. You're a person who historically hasn't had a good relationship with police. So you see lights flashing, and then your body is kind of reacting to that. So you're constantly contending with things and trying to figure out how to survive, really. It's not just the stress of living with all of those things. It's also the stress of coping with them. This is not stress that can be ameliorated by a massage. The type of stress that is killing us can't be cured by going on vacation. But then what makes that uniquely American? If you think about the lack of a social safety net that we have, you know, in our country, we tend to think about that lack of a social safety net strictly through a healthcare lens in terms of insurance, right? We have insurance or we don't. But also when we think of food insecurity, housing insecurity, job insecurity, there are a lot of nations that have much higher safety nets or the, the, the holes are much smaller in terms of making sure the overall well-being of their citizens and their society is taken care of. And so that kind of lowers those barriers that you have to kind of overcome that because of how our society is structured are just there for an overwhelming majority of the population. And they're significantly higher for people who have historically been marginalized. So what is that stress doing to people in this country's health long term? <laughs> it's ruining it. Um, no, but it is. It, it, it is wearing bodies down. And so it's, it is wearing literally so the the theory is weathering. Um, it is coined such by a uh, population health specialist at the University of Michigan. Her name is Arlene Geronimus. And so if you think about um, the shingles on the side of a house that are constantly being bombarded by rain, hail, snow, and they maybe started out a really pretty yellow and now they're just faded and they're worn, that's weathering. If your stress switch is constantly activated and is constantly going, it kicks off this very kind of complicated, intricate dance of stress hormones and those hormones, you know, widen blood vessels, muscles to kind of get you to react. So if you're trying to run from a lion on the savanna, you want this physiological chain reaction to occur because— you're able to respond quicker. Um, there's more oxygen that's flowing to all of you know your organs, so you can respond. And then when the sh 
threat goes away, everything is supposed to settle back down mm-hmm. and you kind of calm it's back It's like fight down. or flight and it's then a, you— Exactly. And so then it's over. And so now you're back at baseline. But what happens is if you're constantly revving, if you're constantly kind of in a defensive crouch waiting for the lion on the savanna, which your body really is not sophisticated enough to know that the microaggression, the police car, the fight with the landlord is not a lion, but your body reacts the same way. And if you're constantly anticipating that next threat, the gears break. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful term, the idea of weathering, because I feel like it's like you're aging faster, it almost sounds you like. You are aging faster, actually. So what happens is it creates this kind of schism between your chronological age and your biological age. You know, so stress is it's, it's hardwired in the body, and it's happening at, a, at the cellular level. So I might be 32, but physically be in the health of someone who's 42, right? Because I'm developing these, these chronic conditions earlier, because my body is aging because of all of this stress and constantly being under this assault. And then zooming that out, that means people may develop these health conditions that you might imagine would be developing later in life much earlier, whether that's like high blood pressure or even just obesity and other issues like that? Absolutely. So there have been some studies that have shown, particularly among um, different communities, but like the black community, uh, they develop hypertension, diabetes, and suffer strokes 10 years earlier than their white counterparts. Um, There have been studies that have shown increase in breast cancer mortality for folks who, you know, are constantly kind of under this assault. Cardiac conditions, you name it, 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 it touches a whole class of like chronic conditions and bodily functions that are affected by this physiological reaction. Hmm. So you're constantly under this assault. What? How do you make sense of this information? And also, like, how early does that weathering even start? It starts in the womb. It starts in utero when those stress hormones are crossing the placenta. There's research that has shown women who were experiencing stress during the pandemic the texture and structure of their placentas changed, right? So stress hormones can really do these horrific things, and they start young, and it happens. It is a cumulative effect, and it happens continuously as you as you age. You know, as you're younger and you are being exposed to adverse kind of experiences, poverty, violence, but then it's the resilience and kind of this high-effort coping to deal with that. I feel like I'm getting stressed just hearing you talk about this. Um Because I feel like when you hear about the stress and understand it, it can make a person more stressed. I mean, I guess it could or it could empower you to make you kind of understand physiologically what is happening to your body when Mm. you're getting stressed. But also that some of this stress is not your fault, Mm. you know. So this is is a societal project, as Dr. Geronimus says. And so, again, we're not talking about individual-level things, you know, because when you think about it within the realm of life expectancy, you kind of quite often hear about these individual. If we just stop drinking so much soda, if, you know, we just exercise more. And don't get me wrong, those are all very important things to do, but there's no amount of stop drinking soda that is ultimately and radically going to change the overall life expectancy. It's got to be multi-layered. And mm. so, you know, Dr. Geronimus's argument is this is a way to kind of capture some of those other things in their totality. So, like, yes, it's stress. And I quite often said when I was writing this story, I can feel myself being weathered right now. It is, like, actively happening. No weathering, Akilah. Well, I mean, 
to your point, right, about how it can feel very disempowering, but I also think it can give you language and give you an understanding of, like, what is happening. And so when we were talking to all of these researchers, one of the things that really was driven home is if we want to fix this, we have to reconceptualize how we think about health. And so this is saying let's reconceptualize how we think about stress and what stress does to the body. But ultimately, in the long run, I'm hoping it is an empowering thing to make you think differently about kind of how you yourself have structured your life and if there are some things you might be able to do, some boundaries you might be able to set. It can cause you to think more holistically about life, and it also can let you know that some of this is beyond your control. And if it's beyond your control, don't get stressed out about it. Akila, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I always enjoy chatting with you. After the break, we travel to a region straddling three state lines to look at how red state politics have impacted life expectancy. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. At the start of this episode, we talked about how decades ago, there began to be a shift in life expectancy in America. Suddenly, it started to really matter where you lived. Reporters Dan Diamond and Lauren Weber zeroed in on this growing divide and the political changes that drove it. Here's Dan Diamond. One factor here that Lauren and I reported on was that the federal government has increasingly empowered the states over some of these decisions. It goes back to the Reagan administration in the 1980s. After 50 years of taking power away from the hands of the people in their states and local communities, we have started returning power and resources to them. Wanting to give states more control over essentially setting up their social safety nets and their use of federal funding. So there is more power now at the state level for determining things, whether it is something like Medicaid expansion or whether it is just setting these policies that affect our daily lives. And then in the ears of lawmakers, our lobbyists trying to win victories for their constituencies. And we drilled into that, too, as part of our story. So how are you seeing the impact of this today? Lauren Weber and I went across the Midwest to several states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, and traced the story of political decisions through three neighboring counties along the shore of Lake Erie. Ashtabula, Ohio, Erie, Pennsylvania, Chautauqua, New York. And I think what we learned is that decisions made decades ago about how strictly to regulate cigarettes or how much to invest in public health interventions or even how much to encourage residents to wear seatbelts, those decisions all have ripple effects. And we can see some of those effects today. And those are just a few slices of what's happening across the U.S. health system. Our colleague Dan Keating months ago, maybe even a year ago, came to us with an analysis that as counties across the United States got redder, it seemed like people were dying younger. So Lauren Weber and I tried to 
put some reporting behind that, what was actually happening. And that's why we focused in on these neighboring counties along Lake Erie. And I should say, all of these counties have seen economic pain. This isn't just a health story. Industries have pulled out of the Midwest. None of them are a picture of good health either. But Ashtabula, Ohio specifically, was the outlier. It, it was screaming out for all the wrong reasons. It had higher rates of smoking death. There were higher rates of diabetes-related complications. There were more motor vehicle deaths in this county. The bottom line, too many people in Ashtabula were dying young. And Ashtabula is kind of a stand-in for the broader state of Ohio, which has become redder in recent years. Republicans took hold of the legislature there about 30 years ago and have held on. They have fought efforts to redistrict the state. They, they have held the legislature for basically all but two years over the past 30. So the idea that there are policies that could protect people, but these policies themselves are dying in, in the legislature. We wanted to show the consequences of fighting against, say, tobacco taxes and how that might play out with a higher smoking rate in a state like Ohio. I want to zero in on the tobacco tax. So, like, what is it about a policy around a tobacco tax that would lead to what you're saying are preventable, premature deaths in these places? So there's a simple calculus when it comes to buying cigarettes. How expensive are they? If they are more expensive, there's evidence that fewer people will buy them, or it will make it harder for people to buy them. Ohio has a relatively low tobacco tax. Neighboring states like Pennsylvania and New York have higher tobacco taxes. Where those other communities are. Yes. And the smoking rates in those communities are lower than they are in Ohio. And some of it, too, was just hearing from the lobbyists fighting against tobacco taxes, saying, we know there's evidence that if we raise tobacco taxes in Ohio, we will see sales of cigarettes go down in Ohio. Now, public health people would say that's a win, but there are economic interests that would say, no way. We want those cigarettes as a way to bring people into stores. They're coming to buy their pack. They also might be shopping for other things, too. It's not only tobacco taxes. The, it's just one of many interventions. But I was sitting down with a senior Biden official earlier this week talking about something completely different. And this person brought up, we know tobacco taxes work. There's just a lot of evidence that they do. In Ohio, it hasn't always neatly broken down by party. There was a Democratic governor, Ted Strickland, who led the state in the 2000s. And during the economic downturn, took some money that was intended for smoking cessation and put it toward other needs like balancing the budget. And then there was a Republican governor. You're talking about from the tobacco settlements where states got a lot of money from tobacco companies to invest in tobacco prevention, basically. That's exactly right. The tobacco companies were on the hook for all these harms from tobacco. There was a national settlement. States got tons of money to do with as they would. And Ohio did put a good chunk of that initially toward smoking cessation. But over the years, that fund was raided again and again. And when the economic downturn hit, the Democratic governor, Ted Strickland, the Republicans in the legislature, took that money and used it for other initiatives. Over the complaints and warnings from anti-smoking advocates who said, you will rue this day. You need this money. So it's, it's not a neat story necessarily of some politicians who are Democrats, are anti-smoking and Republicans are pro-smoking. It's more, it has been easy to pass off the burden of fighting this. The economic arguments that quite often have won out over the public health ones, especially in states where Republicans have been in control. John Kasich, the Republican governor of Ohio, 
saw this a decade ago, wanted to raise the tobacco tax in Ohio as a way of fighting the high smoking rate there. The Republicans in the legislature stopped him. We sat down with the current Republican governor, Mike DeWine. He said he's open to a tobacco tax too, raising it Mm -hmm. uh, in Ohio. But it's not clear from the Republican lawmakers that we spoke with that that would have any broader purchase. You know, at the same time, people vote for these representatives. So these decisions to not prioritize public health initiatives, it's almost a broader cultural reflection of a place. I'm wondering then how we think about this in light of these broader concerns about life expectancy. It's a great question, especially because we just lived through a pandemic where so much of this was front and center. The idea of mandating masks or requiring people to get vaccinated to attend colleges or work in certain places. And Republicans have pushed back on this, not just during COVID, but for years. The tobacco taxes are part of this. We spoke to Representative Bill Seitz, longtime smoker, a guy who said he went through a pack a day for 50 years until recently having to quit because he developed what appears to be, according to his doctors, a smoking-related cancer. What? But he still defends people's ability to smoke. He still says he's going to fight the tobacco taxes. He doesn't want, as he said, the, quote, smoke Nazis to win. And I I think what you're touching on is this deeper ethic of, in the Republican Party, it's about individualism. But in public health, it's about the community. It's about everyone. And sometimes that means taking steps, like encouraging smoking cessation, where you're protecting everybody, even if the individual doesn't want that sort of intervention. But why tobacco taxes? Why did you focus on something like that in Ashtabula? What exactly were you hoping to highlight there? We wanted to go deeper into this question of overlooked chronic diseases. There's been so much political attention on what are known as deaths of despair. That would be alcoholism, drug overdoses, suicides. And they have gone up. They've gone up in Ashtabula. They've gone up across the Midwest. They've gotten a lot of political attention from the current and previous White House. But in doing analysis compared to deaths of despair, if you're looking at people age 35 to 64, prime of life, there are actually far more deaths caused by heart disease, smoking-related cancers, diabetes, other chronic conditions. Our colleague Dan Keating ran an analysis of CDC death records, and I just want to be sure that I'm getting this right, so I'm going to look at my notes. Between 2015 and 2019, nearly five times as many Ashtabula residents in their prime died of chronic medical conditions, as died of overdoses, suicides, and all other external causes combined. So for all this focus, and rightfully, on opioids and suicides, there are these persistent problems that have fallen out of the dialogue. We spoke to an expert at an Ohio Health Policy Institute who said, we're trying to raise alarms on smoking, but it it feels like we're screaming into the void on this. It is an American crisis. And the only way to actually tackle it requires thinking in the biggest possible strokes or aligning these specific efforts in a way that lead to real gain and benefit. And if you start looking across all of the different slices of America, all the different factors that contribute to eating unhealthy, to driving unsafely, to not taking the steps that might save more lives, there's always going to be someone on the other side who in some ways is benefiting from whatever lax policy we have in place. And I think that was a disturbing realization from this story, that we drilled in on one small corner of America and a few causes of some deaths in Ohio, and this is what we found. After talking with Dan Diamond and Akilah Johnson about all of this, 
I wanted to return to Dan Keating, the data reporter, the one who launched this whole project. Because it all feels real bleak. It's pretty depressing, and I imagine even though the health researchers that you've been working with who study this over time are not surprised, did you discover and find any bits of hope, like in the data or in the reporting? I was going to come back and say, actually, it's much worse than we think. <laughs> because the thing, about, the thing about this that is even more painful, every death is a ripple in a pond that affects an enormous number of people. So when somebody dies young, that's somebody's parent, somebody's uh, income support or family support, and it really causes enormous stress and anxiety and physical pain for a lot of other people. And it, so it becomes intergenerational and it expands and widens out. In terms of a source of encouragement is that, in fact, when we talk with public health experts, there are a lot of things that we know that we could be doing that would make it better because we see other countries doing them and we see other countries doing things and living longer and countries that have less wealth that are doing more to prioritize how long people live. So it's not like we're caught in some horrible trap for which there's no idea of how to escape. There are things that we could be doing, but none of that could happen unless we decide to make it a priority. And we've seen cases where we have done things right. I think one of the examples I always obsess about is mothers against drunk driving because mm. I'm old enough to remember when everyone kind of shrugged at drunk driving and said, oh yeah, that's, how, that's what happens. It's just what people do. And they were able to turn around something that powerful and save a lot of lives. So we have many times in this country had movements that made lives better for a lot of people and took away some of these really deadly things. And the question is, are we going to do that again? Are we going to do the things that we need to do to make this country healthier again? Because right now the path we're on is going to keep getting worse if we don't. Dan Keating, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. Dan Keating is a data reporter at The Post. Akila Johnson and Dan Diamond are health reporters. This episode was produced and mixed by Eliza Dennis. It was edited by Maggie Penman. Tomorrow on the show, we're taking a look at one of the countries that has much less money than the U.S., but is doing much better at keeping its people alive. Portugal is one of the countries that people describe as positive outliers. They're living longer than we are. And the key thing there appears to be a focus on primary care and community health. They're really looking after people before they ever get to hospital. That's tomorrow on Post Reports. There's a lot more to this life expectancy project. You can find a link in our show notes, including a calculator, where you can see based on your age, gender, and where you live, what this means for you. I'm Alana Gordon. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. 
Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.